0: You'll end up having people commenting or saying stuff like, are you saying I have to do all this extra research, all this extra stuff just to make sure I do it okay? Like, that seems insane. And I'm like, one, if you're creating a fantasy world, it's not that much extra research. And two, yes, that's what we're saying. You have to do this if you want to do it right. And, you know, that's that's how you end up with extremely offensive stories.
1: Welcome to Worldcasting, where we discuss real, made-up things. I'm your host, Taylor, and today we will be discussing worldbuilding using cultural inspirations from the new world. In this episode, we'd like to discuss the use of indigenous peoples and underrepresented ethnic cultures as world-building inspiration. Examples, encouragement, cautions, and resources for doing so. These are the unsung heroes of speculative fiction, and we'd like to sing their song. Today, joining me are Kathy, Xavi, Daniel, and Tim. Would you mind introducing yourselves?
2: I'm Kathy, the overprepared GM. I'm a writer with World Building Magazine, and I'm also working on a tactical RPG set in a fantasy world based on Latin American culture, sort of Zorro through the Looking Glass.
3: Hi, my name is Ivy. Um, I also go by Opal in the Discord, and I'm an editor at World Building Magazine. I do write some world building stories as well in my free time.
0: And I'm an aspiring editor. Hello, I'm Daniel Green. I'm a YouTuber who makes fun videos about the fantasy genre and sci-fi and fiction at large. I try to have some deep insights, but it's more just a way to celebrate fantasy.
4: And uh, I'm telling you might know me better as Future Me. I'm also a YouTuber. I talk about writing and world building with a particular edge towards sci-fi and fantasy. And uh, I'm from New Zealand, which has different indigenous cultural stuff to talk about
1: so glad to have you all here i think this is going to be a great discussion i'm really excited about talking about this topic i think there's a lot to be said and i hope that we will be able to do it justice Um, as opal said earlier this is this is a topic we don't get to discuss very often and I, i think that that's important to keep in mind So I think firstly, we want to just fully flesh this concept out. So what do we mean when we say in quotes, the new world?
2: So for me, I think the most important differentiator between the new world and the old world is this colonial experience. It's not necessarily a wonderful thing that binds us, but For the Americas, it was the Columbian Exchange in particular was a monumental line in the sand between what happened before and what happened after. And with a number of other areas outside of the Americas, specifically the Pacific Islands and Australia and New Zealand, they had that similar line in the sand where what happened before and what happened after can be clearly delineated. Whereas in Africa and Europe and Asia, they had maybe colonies, but it wasn't this clear line where history was completely interrupted over the course of a couple of years. So for me, that's the defining characteristic.
3: Yeah, my understanding of new world and old world also has to do with that colonial line. Of course, I think it's important also to mention that people existed before colonization. When we say new world, I think it's important to, to keep in mind that like that world was not newly made there was a world that existed before it happened and when we talk about new world we're talking about the americas from a colonialist kind of uh, perspective of these worlds now exist because we're here i think that's like important perspective to keep in mind
4: yeah i i, I totally get what you mean i think uh for me like when, t- when it comes to world building a lot of it is uh, about like what culture has primacy in in what you're centering it around you know we have a lot of uh, European or or Asian centric uh, world building, you know, out there at at the moment. But there are some stories which kind of give primacy to that older world. So when we're talking about new world specifically, I guess like <laughs> just because of how it's culturally tied to the colonial era, it's sort of difficult to separate it from that. But I think going back and 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 looking at stories which have you know, indigenous cultures being kind of the driving force behind the world building. I would put plenty of stories kind of like in that era of kind of like we're entering a world in which there is this, this older culture that I am not necessarily a part of. I
0: completely agree. And I also, to me, there's almost like an irony to the term new world because we really are going backward and Mm. discovering what's already been there, things that have been borderline eradicated in some cases. And it's trying to do as good a job as you can of piecing together, uh, you know, what you can. Because a lot of the times, unfortunately, because of horrible, horrible history, you know, these things are not still documented as well as they should be. So it's really important to be thorough when you're going back and be respectful. You know, there's, all kinds of usages of like sensitivity readers and things along those lines to make sure you're doing it justice. There's almost this irony to the term, as I said, where you have to go back to the new world and it's exploring what already existed and what was known because it's almost been lost. It's, it's sad, but it's something we're seeing, thankfully, take prevalence more and more as we're allowing more authors from different walks of life and things along those lines to have voices. Excellent. There's another binary
1: we need to talk a little bit about, Prior to the episode, we discussed the concept of open versus closed cultures and Kathy somewhat alluded to that in her statement. So if we could talk a little bit about open versus closed cultures, that would be fantastic.
2: Western mainstream civilization that I think we're all very familiar with is an open culture. It is one that seeks to spread and that wants to grow. The assumption is that you're you're going to want to spread it. You want to go worldwide, have more people know about it. That is one that is so ingrained in our culture that it's hard to step away from it and even imagine not existing within that paradigm. But there are cultures where they're closed. You know, they don't want it to spread. They have the people in it. They want to continue it on, but they're not interested in publicizing it. And in some cases they are specifically prohibited. It's a taboo within the society to talk about parts of their culture to spread parts of their culture. And in my mind, because I'm part of this Western culture, uh, I know there are some religions that are evangelical and some religions that are not evangelical. And so I try to think of it in those terms, except for a culture rather than religion where they don't want to spread. They keep part of it in very secret and it's, it's taboo to spread it out.
4: That's a really interesting point because I know that like Jewish communities tend to be a lot more, both culturally and religiously, more closed in in, in that sense. I don't believe I've ever heard of Jewish colonialism. <laughs>
2: <laughs> or evangelicalism. Like I've never met a, a Jewish person who's like, hey, why don't you join me? You know?
0: It actually kind of lends to a a wider point I find very interesting where, you know, we tend to think of cultures as this very, like, singular thing. Like, oh, this person is Jewish and that's their defining thing when that's not how culture works. A person can be, you know, American Jewish from the city. Like, there's all these different things that build into the culture a person exists in, who they are. And, you know, it's why you can find, like, differences between, you know, a Jewish person born in America versus born in Europe, and there's going to be different aspects to a culture that then forms the wider group that exists geographically around them. And so you'll you'll find some groups that are more closed because of that, others that are more open. I know I I dated a girl who was Jewish, and she she actually got a conversation about how her group was more open than the ones that her family was actually more tied to back in Europe. And that was just because of the American culture that kind of like seeped into the wider congregation they had.
2: And I think when we talk about sensitivity and appropriation, part of it is the actions that we can take, but to a certain extent, we also need to pay attention to the culture itself. Are they interested in sharing or not? Because if they are a closed culture that is not looking to talk about this stuff, then trying to spread it for them is a very disrespectful thing we can take so many steps, but beyond that, we should also listen to what they're saying.
3: Yeah, we were actually talking about this a little bit earlier. So I'm Dominican and we celebrate a lot of, uh, in the countryside, there's a bit more of a mix between faiths. And some of that uh, celebration is often kept kind of like secret and not, not meant to be shared. And it's like really disrespectful for like people to like record certain ceremonies that's kind of part of the whole like closed c- kind of culture thing. And it's interesting because when it spread to New, York's, New York City, it became more of an open thing. But some of the religious connotations were removed from that in certain ways. Some of it stayed, of course, like if I go to a funeral and we celebrate it with like Gaga music and stuff like that, then you have Religious aspects of it, but a lot of the times the voodoo aspects of it will not be included. That's just really interesting how you're talking about Americanizing closed cultures. That was just a really, really interesting comment because it's not as open. It's more closed in like the Dominican countryside.
0: Yeah, it's it's just one of these aspects where, you know, there's going to constantly be, like, culture is not a stagnant thing, right? It's something that evolves and changes. And unfortunately, sometimes it's forced. You know, there's forced changing of cultures, which is something we've seen through colonialism throughout its entire evil, horrid history. It's one of these things where I kind of struggle with a lot of authors, like, reaching into cultures that maybe are close. It's also difficult when like an author is reaching into a culture that's kind of almost extinct because it's like, you don't know how they would want to be represented or how what they would be okay with. So when it comes to world building specifically, there's almost this like, I've never actually had a conversation on it. Like I've never really talked about it because I don't know if it's appropriate, if it's wrong, if it's right and to do so. It does feel almost like grave digging to me in a
4: sense. I understand that sentiment, but you know, at the same time, like there, there are so there's more dead cultures and religions out there than there are live ones. and it's it's history, but it's also while I do understand that some people going have a closer relationship with that sort of history, I feel like the further back you go, the the more it's humanity's collective history. And in fiction, like we we draw on this sort of stuff kind of like from anywhere and everywhere. and concepts of ownership I think, get more complex the further back you go.
3: I think one thing to consider is that whenever you are representing a culture that's not your own or or taking parts of culture that's not your own, you're, you're always going to be showing an interpretation of it and not necessarily the culture itself, because there is always going to be that gap in nuances and a deeper understanding that is going to be missing. Just like if you write your own completely made up fantasy world. There's so much that can't be said in exposition. There's so much that can't be said in context that is so defined by nuances. And that's just like one person's made up culture. And then you think about, oh, if you try to borrow from a different culture, there is so much that you just won't understand when you're representing it.
2: Now, I think if we get into sort of the practical side of how do you do it in a respectful manner, one of the easiest ways is to not try to represent a particular culture, but just to take inspiration from it. I am not from Mesoamerica, but there are a number of cultures there that have really interesting bits and pieces from their history, how the different societies were organized, um, how their artwork is, that I have found useful in my own work. That's another part of it. If you're trying to write a historical novel that actually represents or a contemporary novel that actually represents the culture, there's a level of obligation to be sensitive and to be uh, truthful that you don't have if you are merely taking inspiration from it.
3: There's a really, really great article by one of our community friends that talks about how to ethically tell stories in the context of like other cultures. And they're talking about, you know, there are certain things to avoid, like overused stereotypes, um, especially for cultures that like, don't have a dynamic range of expression because it's only been a certain story or a specific interpretation of that culture told over and over again. And there's, like you were saying, you know, sensitivity readers, getting people from like that culture to look at it and be like, oh, this is actually really wrong, totally butchering this, you know, kind of concept thing. It's it's actually a really great article and I highly recommend it.
4: What would be your favorite examples of... A, a, a new world story that sort of ta- does it well, though, you know, like with, with all this in mind, because I think, you know, talking to the people that, you know, are a part of a community or an experience that you don't know about, you know, is, is really vital. In the same way, writers and world builders research anything and everything. They like research economics and politics and whatever to make their worlds as real as possible. And so when drawing from these places, is there is there a gold standard out there? Is there something you've read or seen that you felt, oh yeah, no, that, that really hit the mark?
3: The article was Understand Appropriate Worldbuilding by Chris Winkle. It's really good. I highly recommend it. Um, one that I really, really enjoyed that was pretty famous uh, in the graphic novel community, especially amongst Puerto Ricans, was Kenya, And it, it's, like, it's kind of like on the softer side of worldbuilding. It takes a look at that religious and cultural history. One thing that I thought was really, really cool about it was that after Puerto Rico was really hit by Um, The hurricane season also was like very intentionally like talking about Puerto Kenya is a, uh, a superhero who is Puerto Rican from Brooklyn, New York. Um, And she's kind of like a little bit in the Marvel universe, but originally she wasn't. She, she goes in and she brings in other superheroes to go save Puerto Rico. And it's just really, really cool because it's made by someone who is Puerto Rican and it, does a good job of being like, here, let's take a look at our culture and like, let's like spread more of our culture. And it's also like, it also gives back to the island. It doesn't just take from the culture. It also gives back in terms of, hey, like here are some projects we can do to help our island that's really struggling right now. So that honestly, I I would consider like one of the gold standards because it not only does so much for the culture, but it also does so much for the diaspora. It does so much for the island itself and of course it's a, it's a bit of a unique example but i mean it's it's really great i highly recommend it to anyone who wants to read it
2: i know for me one of my favorites has been it's a trilogy called Telesa by Lenny Went Young and it's a young adult urban fantasy trilogy by a Samoan author set in Samoa and the setting itself uses Samoan culture and supernatural elements to build this urban fantasy setting. So it's just completely different from most urban fantasies that you read. In addition, you know, into building this really interesting story that I've never seen anywhere else, uh, interesting setting that's really great. She deals with a lot of issues, whether it talks about the Experience for people who are multi ethnic, uh, coming in from one ethnic group and sort of living in a liminal space between them or dealing with female representation. What's it like to have? They have a lot of women in a lot of different roles that are very complex. And so it's just a, especially for a young adult novel, it's an incredible series. And I've never read anything quite like it. And as you're reading it, it hits a lot of those young adult tropes. Like it, it feels like it should be, I don't know, read by everyone who likes any other of the big urban fantasy things. And they have the love interest and the identity crisis and a lot of these things in the story. But while you focus on the story, they're dealing with all these issues underneath it all. And I think that's really interesting. But I'd also say Aliette de Baudard, she wrote this series that's an Aztec noir mystery book trilogy. So it's set before the conquistadors came. It's fully in the Aztec empire, not during the Colombian exchange, which is a little bit more rare. Usually when you deal with the Aztecs and the Mayans and the Incas, they're dealing with it during the time period when they're clashing with the Europeans. So it's neat to see it by itself. And the main character is the high priest of the dead and he's doing murder mysteries. That's part of the role. And Alia de Bodard is, and I hope I'm not butchering her name. I've only read it. I've never heard it, but she is Vietnamese as far as I know, but her research into Mesoamerica is beautiful. And so I think she does an incredible job of coming in from an outsider perspective and really doing justice to to making live the setting that we don't normally see.
3: That sounds like a really great example.
2: Oh, it's great. If, If you have any interest in it, I mean, I'm not, I don't normally read mysteries, but I recommend it. It's fun.
3: Something I just wanted
0: to hit on this kind of on a similar note, but a little bit of a change is uh, people often want to represent cultures and they want to do it well. What they'll end up doing is they kind of overly polish. And it's like when you see someone only use positive stereotypes and things like that. And what you end up doing is misrepresenting in a new way where you can see someone almost, I'm trying to think of a, a, the correct word, fetishize in a way. And it's inaccurate because it's not a real a representation of the culture, it's you taking your own values of things you think are good and positive and taking them from there. And it's not an accurate or respectful, in my opinion. There's also kind of like this overcorrection. It, to me, it's, I don't know, it's just a, something I'd love to hear talked about because it's like this thing you can see done, what's almost disrespectful in this alternative way, in my opinion.
3: Yeah, that's actually a really good point. One thing that I always like to talk about is how underrepresented these stories and these voices are. And part of the problem with not having those voices heard or those stories told is that you end up having very little representation. So every piece of representation that does come about has so much more weight attached to it than would a story that is similar to Tolkien in some way, right? And so like, part of fixing that problem of that weightiness associated with what stereotypes you use would be solved by simply allowing these stories to be marketed more mainstream so that you have enough diversity that not every single example has weighs so heavily for the entire culture, right? When it's represented.
2: And I think if you're telling a story also, something that helps a lot is if you have only one member or one member of the main cast representing it, then that character has to carry a lot. But if you have a lot of them in there, then you can have one that's good and one that's bad and one that's lazy and one that's hardworking and you can have that variety. So it's not trying to all be one thing. You see that with women also, where traditionally women are not seen as the protagonist. And so now they become the protagonist. Now they have to be the strong woman and do everything, but there's only one of them in there. So they have to do everything, you know? And I think you see that culturally also.
0: Directly off that, that's actually something my uh, my mom, who's a lesbian, brings up to me all the time. She's like, equality is not lesbians being these great, awesome characters all the time. Like, a lesbian can be a villain. That would be fine. That's real equality.
4: Not making these perfect people in every story. I do agree. There's a trope called Planet of Hats. I don't know if you, you guys have heard of it.
1: Oh, yeah. We talked about that.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Planet of Hats, which the. For- people who don't know in the audience, is uh, where an entire society, uh, sometimes a planet, you know, if you're on sci-fi, is defined by a single trait. Um, David Eddings, I believe, does this quite a bit. Uh, Star Wars will Mm. tend to do it. It's not, like, inherently bad because, you know, you can have, like, these space operas where it's kind of interesting to have an entire society where everyone's a gambler or an entire society where everyone's a Spartan warrior. Like, it's not inherently bad, it is it is a trope I think that indigenous populations or, or depictions kind of fall into when you when you find these societies in fiction that they're all kind of this this society of hats where everyone's a, a wise sage who talks about Wendigos all the time. And that can be
0: damaging because it it. it- the humanity away from what like, the culture you're pulling from in a sense, because you're basically making a caricature, right? You're saying everyone is this caricature. They're not actual people with day-to-day problems and lives and feelings and issues. You're just saying everyone is this, and that is all this was, and that is all you shall think of it as. You know, there's certain fantasy authors who have done this stupendously well, and one of the big signifiers to me that they've done a good job is that there's different views within the culture they're pulling from, like they'll, they'll not, everyone's not homogenous, even in the way they view the world, there'll be internal conflict. They take the level of time and effort and care to say, even within this culture that has different values, different, whatever, people don't agree on everything. They're not just homogenous. They each have their own independent thought. That's a, that's a really positive indication to one of the green flags, I guess I should say.
2: Yeah. I would say it's not inherently bad in the sense that it's not inherently problematic, but I would say that it is inherently bad world building unless you're doing something really unusual, you know, if everyone in your culture is the same way, then that's not very good world building. Like you can't have everyone be a warrior and have nobody get food because then they'd starve or everybody is depressed all the time and no one's ever happy or, you know, and and pick any one thing. If everyone is all that way, then that's probably not good world building because you're not really thinking through how the society would really work.
0: The only time I can think it's like really appropriate is like, cults if you're trying to go for like a cult then sure that can be fine but that's really
4: it
2: or maybe if it's a comedy if you're not trying to make it realistic
4: i'm hesitant to like hold up any particular work as saying oh hey this is a really good example because this is not my area of expertise but um i really enjoyed horizon zero dawn which has a lot of native american inspirations and mythology built into it but of course i also don't really know Native American culture that much. It is not my culture. You know, I, I know next to nothing about it.
3: If you're like a Native American or uh, Indigenous person and you're listening to this, I'm so sorry that we don't have anyone to, to speak on this for... I mean, and like, of course, like there's like a whole vast number of cultures within that identity. But if you're listening to this and you're like, hmm, this is kind of cool. Like, maybe I should like come and join this. Like, please do, because like... We, we would love to have more voices heard.
2: I was going to say, just as a follow-up to Horizon Zero Dawn, I was reading an article recently about it. I don't think it was a new article. I just stumbled across it recently by Polygon. And one of the things they mentioned is how they really liked how the representation issues around race and culture actually made sense in the story. So when a lot of video games, it's just sort of, It is this way because we say it is. And with this one, you kind of assume it's that way for most of the, and then partway through you realize, oh, this is not a culture that coincidentally has Native American features because the people decided to do it. And this is not meant to be a direct continuation. This whole thing, oh, this will be a spoiler. So don't listen for the next two minutes. Though everything here was started very purposefully by these AIs who had to replant everything and so they were re- they started from scratch with people trying to create this diversity and so if there is inaccuracies in how things are depicted it makes sense in the story because they're not trying to say this is what this you know tribe is like or they they come from here or anything like that they're saying this is human societies as interpreted by AIs who are trying to plant a bunch of diversity and I thought that was an interesting take on it.
3: Wow, I never even thought about it like that. that that's, that's actually really cool. I kind of want to read that article now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I'm going to switch gears on us a little bit here. I just want to get a gauge on we're talking about all these things. We're talking about all of this, these great ways to approach speculative fiction by using or borrowing from or being inspired by these new world civilizations. What are your? favorite or most interesting unsung New World civilizations?
3: One that I talk about a lot because I'm Dominican is the whole Hispaniola people. And I don't claim to be like Taino, which is like the indigenous population that largely was part of Hispaniola. Something that's kind of interesting about, you know, New World's kind of-esque stuff is that... Some of these worlds that we want to become inspired by, a lot of it is lost or erased. A lot of what we know about the Taino is not from the culture itself or the people itself, but from archaeologists have discovered. And that's just kind of like an interesting thing to think about is, you know, sometimes they don't really exist anymore. I was lucky enough, though, to go to a museum exhibition uh, where they talked about the Taino. And it's really, really interesting to see how parts of the culture did survive. Um there are certain words like canoe, kayak, uh, hammock. these kinds of words are actually originally Taino. They somehow survived the wiping out of their group of people. And then of course, there's the kind of uh, more like hot pot culture of the island of Hispaniola you have Haiti and the Dominican Republic and you have like the after effects of like colonialization and like the whole, the mixing of uh, West African and in Dominican Republic Spaniard and uh, indigenous culture. And then you have in, in Haiti, of course, French instead of um, Spaniards. And that's kind of an interesting new world example of civilizations.
2: I know for me, I have a lot of favorite examples, but my favoriteest favorite example that I have to mention is the Muisca Confederacy, which is one of the big civilizations pre Christopher Columbus, right, in Colombia. And when the Spaniards came, they wrote a lot about how it was this very sophisticated civilization. They said it looks like Tuscany. You have the irrigated fields, you have the giant roadworks that are connecting all the different regions. And it was a true confederacy where you have, I think it's four different groups that have each their own structure, but then they go together and they recognize that they're a joint nation. And the focus of that particular nation was more on trading than on warfare. So when you see a lot of successful nations, a lot of times they're powerful enough to fight off other countries because they have this strong warrior culture. And the Muisca had a warrior group, the Geche, that famously for the people who know it, they would carry mummies on their back, the mummies of their ancestors, to frighten their enemies in battle, right? So it's kind of a cool thing. I imagine it, and I'm totally using it for my RPG. Imagine having your ancestor mummies carried with you as a particular character class where you can fight with your ancestor mummy into battle. They were some of the originators of The Legend of El Dorado, So if you ask different groups in Latin America, different groups are going to claim that they're where the legend of El Dorado came from. But if you ask Colombians, they're actually going to tell you the truth when they say that, no, we're where the legend of El Dorado came from. And they had gold like you would not believe. And all throughout Colombia, there's this museum called the Gold Museum that has just huge amounts of gold. And the legend of El Dorado in particular is from the Muisca. They would have the sword of the king go to the sacred lake once a year and they worshipped a sun god, among others, but they worshipped the sun god and so once a year, he would row out into the lake covered in gold dust and dive in and they would give all these gold offerings into the lake. Not only the covering of the gold dust from the emperor himself, but also A number of other beautiful gold-crafted items that they would just dump into the lake because it reflected the sun and the gold as a material was obviously, to them, a shadow of the the sun god itself. And the richness of this, you know, drew in the Spaniards from different places and they came and they attacked and they tried to take the women and, you know, take the slaves and the Muiscom were mostly able to fight them off. And it always frustrates me because when we hear about civilizations in the Americas, we're really taught that there were three. There's the Aztecs, the Mayans, and the Incas. And then, you know, in popular perception, there's a bunch of tribes wandering around in some sort of primitive state in the rest of the Americas. But the Muisca were a really good example of not that at all. They were... I don't like to say that the trappings of civilization that are valued by the Western culture are the only things that should be valued. But even if you value those things, even if you value complex societies and, you know, trade networks and coins and settled agriculture and roads and, you know, architecture and all that kind of stuff, they had that and yet nobody talks about them. For me, that's one of the big unsung heroes. And there's lots of information about them if you go looking because they had all these items that they left behind. They were written about by the Spanish because they were actually able to hold off the Spanish for quite a bit. So I love them. I love Mesoamerica in general just because there's so much on them and it's really interesting. But if I have to pick a favorite, I say the Republic of, and I'm going to totally mess this up, Tlaxcalan and maybe the Tlinglet just because they live in a temperate rainforest and it's a beautiful place. I've lived there and they had a society that was so rich and successful in their area that they had a lot of time left over to spend on art and culture. And so they did. And one of the cultural things that they did is competitive parties or competitive celebrations. They would compete with each other to throw the best celebrations and, I want to live there, you know.
4: For me personally, I really like seeing Polynesian cultures depicted. I mean, I see a lot of it uh, around me a bit more, but and it's it's very much kind of like, oh, hey, you know, that's 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 there's, there's a bit of New Zealand in there because like New Zealand is just forgotten by everyone and ev- everything. But it's it's always nice to see the Polynesian stuff just because I I feel like they have a they have a very different mythology a lot of the time how we typically see. Mythology put put together in 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 uh, world building. Uh, unfortunately, I I'm I'm afraid I don't really have a huge number of examples, but um I always appreciate it mostly just because it's it's a spot of my own culture being put in there. And while I'm not Polynesian myself, like New Zealand is is pretty integrated in terms of where we blow the line between kind of European and Maori, and then more broadly Polynesian culture. Um, it all mixes together quite a bit. My, so I have
0: a kind of a familial, not blood-related connection, but my father worked on a, uh, a play when he was in his post grad. Called uh, it was on to these hills. And so he had a lot of uh, relationship with the Cherokee through that because it was, a, it was told the story of the Cherokee. And because of that, I very much so was taught about them. I went and saw the play five or six times as of you know, going to revisit with my father. And it's just kind of one of these things where it's kind of now the Cherokee have just become like a, a group I've been fascinated by my whole life. So I don't have as a a beautiful or as an elaborate answer. It's more of a, uh, yeah, my family is into it, so I'm into it kind of thing. But yeah, so I've seen that story a lot, and it's one I I greatly appreciate. Beautiful. So I think the next
1: step, and I I really want to talk a little bit about the topic of examples of this type of cultural inspiration in our world building, but I want to ask explicitly, what are some of your, or what is your favorite example of new world world building in the world?
4: I'm boring. I like Horizon Zero Dawn. I, I just, I <laughs> love that game on, on, on every level. And I have thing for prehistoric cultures, kind of discovering, you know, rediscovering high tech sci-fi stuff. Like I love the, the blend between them. I've always found that to be to be really cool. I love seeing that unfold fold in there. And there's a whole lot of little details that if you go looking for it. Recently, we've seen a tremendous culture
0: boom within fantasy. Unfortunately, I'm not educated enough to know exactly which cultures are being pulled from uh, a lot of the times. Uh, and I don't want to sit here and like make stuff up and be like, oh, this is pulled from that clearly. Um, so I'm not exactly sure where a lot of things have been pulled from. So I can't narrow down like, oh, this is directly that. And I don't want to, pretend that I do. Uh, so I don't necessarily have an answer for this because unfortunately if, when you narrow it down to specifically new world, I just don't have a ton of examples. Well, recently can, you, men- uh, you mentioned that you'd read American gods, correct? Oh yeah, for sure. So give me an
1: example of something that was in American gods that you, that was a, a good or even bad. It
0: can be bad for that matter. So for American gods, I probably one of my favorite aspects to the world building of that. It kind of in the more like the meta example of the story, like there was this theme of how these gods that were here, these gods that have been a part of the land for so long, they're never dead. But as the people move on in a lot of ways, their power is waning. Their power is not what it used to be. And that, and that kind of, of sorrowful longing, longing in a way was how it made me feel like there was almost this like, oh, I wish people knew I like that a lot because it made me think of how through the modern teachings we forget so much, like we have such filtered mm. views of the past. I mean, just look at what's going on in America and how we're all being educated on the mm. real atrocities if that occurred. I wouldn't have known half the things that the Native peoples uh, of America had to go through. wasn't for one high school teacher I had who just decided, like, we're not spending a week on this like the school wants me to. We're spending about a month on it because... You cannot do the the t- t- trail of tears justice in a week. Uh, you need more time. It wasn't directly in the text. I don't want to put in Neil Gaiman's pen uh, whether it was intentional or not, but it's definitely something I picked up on. And through the world building, made me remember a lot of the things I learned as a kid.
4: I, I actually want to pick up on what you was just mentioning before about like what Neil Gaiman was saying in the in the um, preface to American Gods. What he says is, and I'm paraphrasing here. He says, "I, I went and lived in America." And it was this weird, strange place. And he said that in writing American Gods, he wanted to quote, describe it. Like he wanted to to describe the cultural weirdness of America from his point of view. And I think that picking up on like the the world building of kind of this idea of a lost world or many lost worlds, many lost gods that have been otherwise relegated to the uh, gutters of society. There's definitely the sense that with a lot of, indigenous gods i think there's one from haiti there's a bunch from from native america themselves uh, that you meet and as kind of like a thematic analog for the experiences of indigenous peoples you have these gods who are very much relegated to the gutters and who are being either, either having to denigrate themselves in order to survive in this new world or being denigrated by others around them and there's it's it's just a really interesting way to depict that societal relationship in an otherwise fictional context i wasn't a huge fan of american gods but my my issues with american gods were more to do with plot and pacing than it was to do with theme and 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 world building i think those were a lot more a lot stronger and where neil gaiman kind of set out to articulate like what is the interpersonal emotional experiences of these different societal groups within american society and specifically that historical context because he has these vignettes that he returns to, which tell the story of gods coming across the ocean, arriving in America, and then what happened to them over time, like the story is interspersed with them. It's a really good way to both draw from a huge variety of cultures while attempting to understand them and put them in words that are easily communicated and easy to understand for someone who is outside of these cultures. You
2: know, talking about American gods, it reminds me This idea of these different cultures and the gods within them and treating that within a fictional fantasy story, it reminds me of T. Kingfisher's Jackalope Wives and Tomato Thief. And the stories aren't exactly the same. This is set in some sort of 1800s, early 1900s, somewhere in their Southwest setting Definitely a fantasy, but these are short stories. And so one thing that I really like about them is that she does a huge amount of world building in a very constrained space, but it also deals with the these different cultures all existing within the same space. You have several indigenous cultures, but you also have the train gods that are literally sort of the embodiment of trains and they keep it going and how, um, oh, I don't want to spoil it. These are really good short stories. They're available for free on our website. And I recommend every single person who can hear me at any point, tell everyone they know they all have to read these stories. T. Kingfisher, I think is dealing with some of the things that Neil Gaiman does in American Gods. And I think that I've seen it one or two other places. And I wonder if this is sort of an emerging movement within fantasy.
3: One story that I really liked was also from an anthology, the queer paranormal romance. They have this really cute story called Black Dog. I think it's the opening story for it. And they kind of uh, mentioned that it's a mix of North English folktale and also the Abenaki tribe. And I think that's also like one thing I totally like forgot to mention this whole podcast is I've been like doing a little bit more uh, research on understanding indigenous populations in the North Americas for this and also for different editing project that I had going on. And one thing that was brought up is that if you can portray a culture from like the actual group instead of as a blanket indigenous group, that's usually preferred just because there is such a big variation. And a really great example of a poorly done (laughs) interpretation of a blanket Native American kind of stuff is uh, the Seven Realms series. At least, like from my understanding, again, I don't really know much about Native American culture, so maybe I'm doing this wrong. And like, they do a great job. I don't know, Um, but it kind of felt like it was very stereotypical Native American representation—the way that they presented the the clothing and the culture. I was really excited when I first read it because it was my first time seeing like like Native American storytelling. This is so cool, right? When I first saw it, because uh, you you never see it, and then like. As I got older and I started like thinking more critically about the way that underrepresented people's stories are told, I started to think like more about like, okay, it's really cool that this was told and can we do it better going into the future kind of stuff.
1: Well, I think this has been a fantastic discussion and I'm really excited about having had the ability to sit down and talk about this. We would like to close now, but I'd love to get your final thoughts,
4: your final uh, remarks. I think for me personally, so much of this is about kind of expanding just what fantasy can be or sci-fi can be and not just kind of like questioning how do you do good world building, but kind of questioning the things behind what we assume world building is kind of going to be about and looking at kind of like, you know, these, these less represented ideas you know like a part part of the reason I've always said is that I love avatar so much is that it, it at a time when there was where there was not that much fantasy depicting kind of you know Asiatic cultures, that it was coming out with a really fully fleshed world. and i I think, yeah, I think I think for me that's just a large part of it. and I'm excited to see where people kind of take you know these new world, these new new cultures that have been discovered throughout the colonial period, you know and in, in, in the future.
0: My uh, concluding thoughts are going to be me taking a shot at certain people. I hope that's okay. You'll end up having people commenting or saying stuff like, are you saying I have to do all this extra research, all this extra stuff just to make sure I do it okay? Like, that seems insane. And I'm like, one, if you're creating a fantasy world, it's not that much extra research. And two, yes, yes. That's what we're saying. You have to do this if you want to do it right. And you know, that's that's how you end up with extremely offensive stories like Disney's Pocahontas, which just changes history and minimalizes certain cultures and all these things. It's like, cause one, they just didn't care and they didn't do the research to find or they didn't didn't care about the research. My concluding thoughts are gonna be like, if you're listening to this from all those people who's angered by this conversation, how am I gonna do this all this extra research? Uh, If you can't do the extra research, then maybe you shouldn't write the story you're trying to write. Because, yeah, it's it's the bare minimum. Yeah,
4: especially when, like, they're always willing to do the research for basically every other part of their world.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And world building is just such a time-intensive thing in general that the research is, relatively speaking, not the biggest part that you're probably going to sink into it. But for me, I'd say there are so many misconceptions out there, especially... You're talking about New World cultures, we've all been taught a lot of things that are really wrong. So, at least in American schooling, we're usually kind of absorbed this idea that before the Europeans came, the Native Americans existed in this sort of unchanging state. And then the Europeans came, and then history started actually moving forward, and there was progress and civilization and stuff like that. And Some people will be bad about it and say, oh, it's better for them in the long run because now we brought medicine and all this kind of stuff. And some people will be sympathetic and be like, oh, it's so sad that they all died out. And none of that's true. You know, the indigenous civilizations are still around and there was a lot of history before the Europeans came and we actually know a lot of it. We're just not taught it. Going that extra mile to find out, even if you think you know what is there, It's useful to look because chances are, unless you've already done some research, you're going to be completely wrong in your uh, assumptions.
3: And and it's also like very, very broad, right? Like we're talking about like a ridiculously huge amount of space. And so there's going to be way different stories, uh, different cultures. One thing I just wanted to say as part of my closing thoughts is that we are living in an exciting time where finally stories that are typically underrepresented are actually getting marketing, like mainstream marketing. A lot of these stories used to be um, kind of neglected in publishing or neglected in whatever industry it was being told in. And so it was a lot of internal publications, that kind of stuff. And it's not that these stories were never there. It's that these stories didn't necessarily have the opportunity to share themselves. And it's also really exciting that we live in this time because... Now that we have the internet, there's less of a gap in terms of the standard for publishing, which is sometimes a little bit elitist. And there's more, more of an opportunity for people to tell these stories where beforehand there's a bit of gatekeeping. This is a really exciting time and we should be celebrating these voices and these stories that are finally being given some room to be seen and to be heard. And I'm really glad that we were able to talk about these kinds of things on this podcast. I hope that this two-parter won't be the the only discussion we have on it. I am just floored that we've been
1: able to even have this discussion. I would love to thank our guest hosts for coming on. Dan and Tim, I appreciate immensely you two taking time out of your schedules to talk with us and really add to the topic. Uh, We'd love to have you both back at some point and I hope you both are doing well in all of your endeavors. Uh, I'd love to thank our fans as well, uh, or our listeners, I should say. I We appreciate you lending us your ears. We hope that something said during this episode will enrich and enliven your world building going forward. This has been Worldcasting, and we appreciate
4: you listening. You've been listening to the Worldcasting Podcast, an affiliate production of Worldbuilding Magazine. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can check out our website at worldbuildingmagazine.com, where you can also find links to all of our social media and our Discord server. This episode was edited by Mackenzie Power.